life is brighter when we understand the science behind it. Hello team. Hello. And welcome back to Getting Brighter, the podcast where we shed light on the science of health, wealth and society. We're breaking down the latest research and providing you with practical tools for positive change. I'm Dr Emily Hughes, a social psychologist. And I'm soon to be Dr Marsha Remsker, and I'm a behavioural scientist specialising in health psychology. Today, our episode is all about motivation Motivation. and goal setting. So this is something that I feel like is spoken about all of the time, everywhere, and everyone seems to be an expert on it. Yeah, there are a lot of opinions flying around, aren't there, in this space? And not all of it is necessarily evidence-based. So we thought it would be really great to dig into the science base and see what the evidence actually says. Yeah. So as always, to start us off, would you mind telling us what is motivation? What are we even talking about here? Yeah, I think this is very necessary to do this because it's kind of an abstract concept, Mm -hmm. I suppose, in many ways. So the term motivation is derived from the Latin term motivus or a moving cause. And this refers to this idea of a driving force or a psychological energy that acts either on or within a person to initiate, guide and maintain goal-oriented behaviour. These driving forces can be referred to as motives, and these include things like our needs, desires, and our wants. So in short, motivation describes why a person does something. Mm -hmm. It's the need or the reason to act in a certain way that gets us closer to our goals, like eating more healthily or getting a promotion at work. And the goals are the things that we're trying to accomplish. So they're our aims. And motivation is our reason for wanting to accomplish them. Okay, that is much clearer now. Thank you. (laughs) And what types of motivation are there? Like, I assume there's not just a motivation, right? Yeah, exactly. So there are two main types of motivation that are frequently spoken about in the literature. And these are described as being either intrinsic or extrinsic. So intrinsic motivation, we've spoken about a little bit throughout this series. It essentially refers to kind of internal motivation. And so it arises from within the individual and it's characterised by doing a behaviour for its own sake. So solving a really complicated crossword puzzle because it gives you gratification for solving that problem. Mm -hmm. It brings you this kind of sense of enjoyment from doing it Mm -hmm. in of itself. Whereas extrinsic motivation arises from outside of the individual it is external and it's characterized by engaging in behavior for some separable outcome so perhaps being externally rewarded for that behavior such as receiving a trophy for something maybe money or even something like social recognition Mm -hmm. for doing that behavior so they're quite different in that way really yeah yeah for sure and I can already recognize some and where they kind of are Mm -hmm. coming from so where did this distinction come from obviously we're scientists so we (laughs) we love to credit others for their work yeah so this kind of distinction between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation is acknowledged in a really highly influential theory that we also have spoken about previously known as self-determination theory. And this grew out of the work of two psychologists, Edward Desi and Richard Ryan, who first introduced their ideas in their 1985 book called Self-Determination and Intrinsic Motivation in Human Behaviour. So perhaps one to go and read if you're interested in it. (laughs) (laughs) Might be a bit of an intense one, but this is kind of where it all came from. And The theory views our regulation of behaviour as existing on this kind of continuum of autonomy. So from being highly autonomous and highly self-determined to being highly controlled. So this is very unself-determined. This is kind of more extrinsic. And as I said, intrinsic motivation falls on this more autonomous end, controlled motivation towards the extrinsic end of that spectrum. Nice. That's making much more sense now. 
And what about the evidence then? Is there evidence saying that being on one end of the spectrum is better for certain outcomes or reaching goals versus being on the other side of the spectrum of motivation? Yes. So there's been so much research into this, but the general message is that autonomous motivation is extremely important. So more autonomous motivation, more intrinsic motivation is more effective than controlled motivation or extrinsic motivation in supporting adaptive outcomes. So you know, behaving in healthier ways, achieving that promotion at work, you know, to achieve those goals, autonomous motivation is really important. And self-determination theory also suggests that there are three key components to facilitating self-determination, such that people become more self-determined or more autonomously regulated when their needs for autonomy, competence and relatedness are fulfilled. So what do each of those three things mean? Autonomy is this idea that people need to feel in control of their behaviours and their goals. So it's this sense of being able to take direct action and have this result in real change that will play a major part in people feeling self-determined. This idea of competence is that people need to gain a sense of mastery over the tasks and be able to learn different skills. So when people feel that they have the skills for success, then they're more likely to take action to achieve their goals. And finally, connection or relatedness is this idea that people need to feel this sense of belonging and attachment and connection to other people in order to feel self-determined. And satisfying these basic needs has consistently been shown to be associated with autonomous motivation and it leads to better outcomes in a number of different domains that we're going to be discussing. So these include things like health, work and education, among many others. But these are just some of the big ones that I think are interesting to focus on. Yes, exactly. So if we start by looking at some evidence for the healthcare domain, we know that there is a lot of evidence and a very strong evidence base here. So if we only consider one meta-analysis, they considered over 180 different studies. It found that supporting autonomy within healthcare settings, that could be things like offering meaningful advice and choices, considering what will work for each patient independently, that predicts all three kind of separate sections of self-determination theory. Mm. So supporting autonomy will predict not only patient autonomy, but also patient competence and relatedness. That is to say that the three components kind of interact. Mm. So if we support one, we are likely to be supporting others as well. And then satisfying those needs or meeting those three needs then predicts quite strongly patient welfare, patient outcomes in terms of mental health, in terms of physical health, to the point of things like glycemic control, weight loss, dental hygiene. So it really is very strongly correlated with patient outcomes and Mm. therefore really important. And then going beyond kind of associative evidence, there is also evidence of causality here. So that means we have evidence from intervention studies that have tried to support and improve autonomy. And we find that across healthcare settings, so whether that be through healthcare professionals, through fitness instructors, through spouses, whichever way we support autonomy, we find beneficial effects on health behaviour outcomes. Mm. The evidence here is primarily for exercise, but also for things like reducing smoking and dietary behaviour. We see similar results. And that is that there's kind of small to medium size effects, but quite meaningful at the end of the intervention. If people are autonomy supported, they will engage in better health behaviours. Furthermore, there's also growing evidence to show that actually if we fail to meet those self-determination theory needs, that can result in the more extrinsic, so controlled 
levels and types of motivation mm. that can be things like behaving to gain a reward or to actually avoid something negative from happening. And that those types of motivation are actually associated with poorer health outcomes. As a result of really the great strength of the literature base when it comes to health and self-determination theory, the concept of having to support patient autonomy has actually made it into medical ethics and is now considered one of the most important outcomes when considering medical care, which I think is great. Yeah, that is. And then if we go ahead and look at kind of the workplace environment, what you find is that autonomy, again, is really important here. And something that is also really important is the way that the environment within the workplace is designed to support this. So a real focus has been looking at different characteristics and how they influence how motivated you are within that setting. So data here comes from a meta-analysis of 259 studies featuring over 200,000 participants. Wow. So this is a big one. And this study identified several job and task design characteristics that relate to satisfaction of one or more of those three key needs, among other behavioural and wellbeing related outcomes as well. And so the three big kind of groupings that they identified here, first of all, were motivational characteristics. So this relates to autonomy in terms of work scheduling, the method that you're working and also decision making. So are you given options and choices in that area? Also things like the variety of the tasks available and the skill level that you're able to work out and how complex your job is and whether you're given the opportunity to specialise. So really focus in on something you're super interested in. There are also social characteristics of the job environment that are important. So whether you feel that you're able to receive feedback from other people, whether you feel socially supported by your employees, by your colleagues and also whether you interact both within and outside of the organisation. So do you have that sense of affiliation with the people you're working with? And there are also contextual characteristics that are important. So things like physical demands, your working conditions and also the ergonomics. So really the way the workspace is designed to facilitate your autonomy. And what we also see in various occupations is that manager and also peer influence, so from your colleagues, is really important in facilitating autonomous motivation in workers. And this in turn leads to more positive job outcomes. And what we see is that when managers are empowering, so really high in that autonomy support we just described, and co-workers are also really supportive of relatedness. So, you know, offering support to employees, really being affiliative in some way. Employees report stronger intentions to not leave their jobs. So they feel fewer hassles during their work days and they also have fewer symptoms of ill health. They also report greater work satisfaction and better psychological health. So autonomy support from healthcare professional colleagues also is found to add to this positive outcome. So it's not just about the management, but again here about support from your colleagues. And you see that that increases motivation and all of these outcomes kind of over and above that effective management. Mm -hmm. And you also see that employees are more creative in their work, which I think is a really interesting finding. A lot of the time we talk about productivity in the workplace Mm -hmm. or, you know, well-being, but also it's important to think about how people go about their jobs. So if people feel supported, then they're more likely to suggest new ways to achieve goals and also be more kind of proactive in their problem solving. Mm -hmm. So they come up with a lot more different strategies and perhaps think outside the box because they feel supported to do so. And it's also interesting to see that this evidence is from a number of different domains. So this comes from the hospitality industry, from the police force, from healthcare. So really in a variety of settings, it speaks to the importance of autonomy support, I think. And then finally, if we look at 
evidence for self-determination theory in education, we know that supporting those three psychological needs through the way we teach is essential to the students' outcomes, both in terms of learning as well as their well-being and mental health. Mm. So there's been studies showing that when college students learn science material with the expectation of then having to explain it to their peer later, so with that more intrinsic motivation or with the value of oh, it's good to help others and this Mm -hmm. is what I'm about to do. They're actually more intrinsically motivated and learn the material better than if their expectation is that they'll be tested on it themselves. Mm -hmm. In which case, there is a more external pressure or motivation because they're kind of under pressure to be evaluated on it later on. Exactly, which I think is really incredible and has great implications for learning. Whereas if we encourage more extrinsic types of motivation through teaching. So that can be things like encouraging students to learn in order to get good grades or to avoid being shamed or things like avoiding to feel guilty. Then we see that actually students achieve less. They have poorer well-being and also poorer mental health, Mm -hmm. which I think, again, is really, really important. And one specific example here is that students attending college with more extrinsic motivation, so not for themselves necessarily, have actually quite specifically poorer well-being and mental health. Yeah, that is really quite something, isn't it? And I think another thing to consider kind of within the teaching environment is that these teaching practices don't necessarily occur within a vacuum. So for teachers to feel able to facilitate autonomy in their students, teachers themselves also need to feel supported and have their own autonomy facilitated. So this is similar to any other workplace, as we've just spoken about, in terms of support from management, support from colleagues. And there's a really interesting study here. So this study looked at Canadian teachers who were teaching between first grade and 12th grade. And what you saw is that those who perceive more pressure from above, so in terms of having to stick to a specific curriculum, not having much freedom in terms of what they're able to teach and particularly how they teach it, you see that those teachers are less autonomous towards their teaching practice and are also more controlling with their students. So it all kind of feeds down from it the transfers top. down yeah. yeah so you need to kind of have that autonomy support from the you know the top down so that it can trickle into those learning practices that you just spoke about and also interestingly teachers that kind of feel this pressure from top management also exhibit greater burnout lower job satisfaction and lower life satisfaction so for us to have happy productive teachers we need to be facilitating their autonomy in the way that they do that yeah so a wealth of evidence for the self-determination yeah. theory it's everywhere. there really <laughs> And now that we know a lot about motivation, we know that motivation is what energizes us. It's what activates our kind of goal directed thinking Mm. and behavior. And it helps us actually achieve those goals, whether that be being healthier, getting a task done, learning something. But if we want to keep motivated, it's also important to think what kind of goals we set and the way we think about those goals. Mm. So are there any theories or any evidence that actually informs what kind of goals we should be setting? What are the elements that we should consider when setting goals? Yeah, definitely. So one really big one within psychology is the goal setting theory of motivation, which basically works by defining what types of goals drive motivation and the factors that influence whether or not we'll be successful in meeting them. So in the 1990s, psychologists Locke and Latham published a really seminal book on this topic, which was called A Theory of Goal Setting and Task Performance. And within this book, they outlined 
outlined a framework, which is often summarized as this five point framework, which is essentially a framework for more effective goal setting. And this theory is now seen as one of the most influential frameworks within motivational psychology specifically. So it's a really important one to kind of wrap your head around. So the first two points in this framework specify the main features of goals that drive motivation and performance. And this is otherwise referred to as goal content. So the first one is goal clarity or goal specificity. And we're going to come back to this one a little bit later because this is a, a really important aspect that is reflected also in the popular SMART goal setting framework. So we'll maybe talk a little bit more about that in Doable. So just sit tight and we will get there. But the second point within this framework is goal difficulty, also known as goal challenge. And there's been a lot of evidence into this. So a study reviewing a decade's worth of lab and field studies into the effects of goal setting on performance finds that 90% of the time specific goals and also goals that are challenging. So those such as maybe to beat your best time or to try and get more than 80% correct lead to higher performance than easy goals or goals such as just do your best. So the message here is that goals should be optimally challenging. They need to be attainable, particularly in the early phases of learning a new or complex task, but they still need to have some element of challenge to push yourself in some way for them to be effective. Brilliant. That summed up the content of what kind of goals we should be setting really well. Yeah. And then the next three factors will influence the extent to which we'll be successful in meeting those clear and suitably difficult goals. Mm. So the third element is goal commitment. That is how committed we are to achieving this goal. Mm. This is particularly important for difficult goals or the goals that we didn't set ourselves. Because for goals that we do set ourselves, we're often quite committed already. Mm. Whereas this might not be the case for goals that other people have set for us. The fourth element is goal feedback. So we need to have a way of being able to track our progress towards the goal to stay motivated. And having feedback on how we're doing allows us to do this. And finally, the fifth element is task complexity. When goals are too complex or too difficult, you know, they might have too many elements or they might too long to achieve, they can become simply unattainable. So that will also reduce the extent to which we'll be successful in reaching them. Yeah. Right. With all of that knowledge, let's now move on to debatable, where we discuss some open questions and points of contention in the literature. And I think one of the really big ones here is this idea of some people are just inherently more motivated than others. So in terms of the science, is there such a thing as a highly motivated person? Mm, I think this is really interesting because this has been common thinking for a long time. Historically speaking, specifically within organisational psychology, so the area of workplace psychology. So the individual difference approach to motivation within workplace was originally pioneered by a man known as Hugo Munsterberg, and this was around 1913. And this kind of individual difference approach was widely adopted within the workplace. And essentially what that means is that hiring committees were of the opinion that people could shortcut attempts to motivate their workforce by simply hiring motivated people. Wow. So by individual differences there, we mean that that idea that some people are just more motivated than others. So let's hire them so we don't have to, you know, on the job motivate our workers, <laughs> which I think is interesting. 
And this thinking was also well supported by theory at the time. So human motivation theory was really popular in the 1960s through to the 1980s. And this theory proposed that people have three dominant motivators, a need for power, a need for affiliation and a need for achievement. And that our dominant motivator is largely dependent on our early life experience, such as our upbringing. And each of these needs is thought to be associated with a different set of personality characteristics. So the idea here really is that need for motivation or our need for something is fixed very early on and that characterises who we are. So I'm a go-getter, I am confrontational, you know, I get what I want. And that plays out within the workplace as your dominant form of motivation. But this interpretation of theory was contended by research, which basically found that your workplace orientation, so your motivation, was found to fluctuate depending on the context that you were working in. So if you were given the opportunity to progress within an organisation, this would change the way that you're motivated. So you are more motivated to, you know, change the status quo in that situation because you felt that boundaries were kind of movable. But unfortunately, this idea didn't necessarily initially trickle down into common thought. So for a long time, people still assumed that there are just more motivated people. Wow, that yeah, really is quite surprising. And luckily, there has been quite a shift in thinking since then, to the point where the predominant motivation theory today, so self-determination theory, one of its defining features and strengths is the fact that it acknowledges both personality as well as the situation in the motivation that results from it. Mm. So self-determination theory will recognise the fact that, yes, we do have personality-driven kind of leanings, you know, whether we lean towards the more autonomous motivation or the more controlled one. However, it does recognise that while we have those leanings, it is all very much dependent on what context we're in and Mm. what specific action it refers to. So it is all still very malleable. And we know that different environments can actually prime people to lean towards those different orientations. So you might actually be autonomously motivated in one domain, but be quite kind of extrinsically motivated in a different domain. Yeah, exactly. So you're not just a person who is high in autonomy or someone who is intrinsically motivated. These are things that can be nurtured depending on our environment and who we're surrounded by. Brilliant. That's really encouraging. So now we know that we can all take steps to be more motivated and better in our goal setting, regardless of our quote unquote natural starting point. But what type of goals should we be setting and how should we be going about that? Yep. So although self-determination theory primarily focuses on the why of people's goals, so on this distinction between autonomy and controlled motivation, it has also studied the contents of people's goals. So what goals, what goal-directed behaviour, just as goal-setting theory has. And a lot of this research has focused on aspirations and life goals more broadly and differentiates in the way that it did with motivation between intrinsic and extrinsic life aspirations. So in short, the guidance from the theory would be to pursue intrinsic life goals versus extrinsic life goals. So just to give you some examples of this, intrinsic aspirations or goals would be things like developing personal growth, developing meaningful relationships, contributing to your community in some way, or being physically fit and healthy. You know, goals that have some sort of vested interest, some interest in things that you enjoy and are essentially good for you and your longevity. Extrinsic aspirations include accumulating wealth, becoming famous or being more attractive. So they're all very Mm. externally facing. 
And studies have shown that when people's aspirations for pursuing extrinsic outcomes are stronger than intrinsic outcomes, then people tend to have lower self-esteem, lower self-actualization, which is this feeling of being able to reach your full potential, as well as higher depression, anxiety, narcissism and engagement in high risk behaviour. Mm. So that's a whole host of negative outcomes. Yeah, that's a strong case yeah, there for it is. intrinsic aspirations. Yeah. And it suggested that these poorer psychological outcomes are not only because of what you're pursuing, so the actual extrinsic goal, but why you're pursuing it. So that controlled motivation. So extrinsic goals work against our basic psychological needs. Pursuing wealth, for example, is likely to leave you feeling less autonomous. Pursuing fame may stop you feeling truly related to those of you who matter, for example. So you can see how all of those things perhaps tie into one another. Yes, absolutely. And again, in addition to the content of the goals, it really depends how we structure or frame the goals that we are striving for. So another tip would be to frame the orientation of goals in terms of approach rather than avoidance, or equally we can say in terms of promoting something rather than preventing something else. So evidence actually finds that striving for approach goals, an example of which can be making new friends rather than avoidance goals such as not being lonely actually increases the likelihood of us attaining that goal. Mm -hmm. So that means if we strive for more kind of active, positive framed goals, essentially, we're more likely to reach them. And the approach goal is essentially the solution to the avoidance goal that we would have tried to avoid. So yeah. it puts you one step ahead in the whole goal attainment process. Yeah. Approach goals are also more active and associated with fewer negative emotions when people think about them and less procrastination because perhaps, yeah, people feel better and more motivated about achieving them. Mm. Another bit of advice is when we frame goals, we should frame them in terms of the process or learning rather than end goal or performance. Mm. So one of the living legends of psychology, Professor Carol Dweck, suggests that goals can either be framed as learning from the task or the process, an example of which could be, I want to learn three specific things from my course, or they can be focused on the end goal or end performance. So that could be, I want to get the highest grade in the class. And we know that learning goals, so those process-oriented goals, lead to better achievement because they actually allow people to cope better with any negative feedback they receive along the way. Because if you're focusing on the process and inherently wanting to be good at something, you can see feedback as a useful tool to actually improve. Mm. Whereas if you're focusing more on the end result, you might see the negative feedback as a sign of you might not get there. Mm. If we are still setting performance goals, though, they are less detrimental when they're framed as approach goals. So tying back to the previous point. So, for example, I want to get good grades rather than avoidance goals. I do not want to get bad grades. So kind of there's strength in combining those different bits of advice. But that is only if the potential to experience fear of failure or that negative feedback is quite low. So when the task is easy, we can also go with performance goals. Really interesting. The final piece of advice here would be to try and frame your goals as both distal and proximal versus either one of those two things alone. So what does that mean? So a proximal goal is a short-term goal and a distal goal is a long-term goal. And when proximal and distal goals are unconnected, what you see is that they are less motivating. So short-term goals help to facilitate the attainment of our long-term goals. Without a series of these short-term goals, the intermediate steps that you need to go through in order to achieve your long-term goal are not clear, and this will stop progress being made. 
Equally, people are less likely to complete these more short-term goals that are unattached to long-term goals because these goals lack meaning, value and purpose. What is the point in me doing this short-term thing if not to achieve a long-term outcome? Mm -hmm. So people who set both distal and proximal goals are more likely to set more challenging goals. And this also leads to increased performance versus just setting one of those two things alone. Because one thing we know from goal-setting theory is that challenging goals are also really good for us. So you're more likely to challenge yourself when you have those steps and that process along the way in place. That makes complete sense. Right, we have covered so much information and evidence already, but let's now move on to Doable, the final section of the podcast where we give you actionable steps based on the science we've just discussed. So how do we actually remember all of this and put it all into practice? Can you help us out? Yeah, so I think first off, it's important to say that people often fall into the trap of setting themselves really abstract goals. So I want to be fitter, I want to feel fitter, for example. But this goal is not entirely clear and not entirely actionable. So it can be made clearer and more attainable using a really popular framework known as SMART or the SMART mnemonic, which was first proposed in 1981 by George Doran as a method for writing effective management goals in the workplace. So it kind of stemmed from the business realm, but has since also been applied to various domains such as health. So SMART just off the bat stands for specific measurable, achievable, relevant and time bound. So let's start with S specific. The first thing you want to do when setting a goal is almost think about the five W's. So who, what, when, where and why. So let's use to put this into context an example, let's say that this is a health-related goal and I do a lot of spinning. I go to spin regularly. So let's try and set a goal related to me going spinning. So for example, I could think me and my best friend, that's the who, are going to join a spin class, which is the what, twice a week, which is when, at our local gym, where, so that I can be healthier and also improve my cardiovascular fitness. That would be my why of doing that goal. The M in SMART stands for measurable. So your goal should have criteria for clearly measuring progress to see whether you're on track for meeting that goal. It's important to think about the framing as we spoke about just earlier. So it's good to be able to track your learning, so that process, as well as possibly measure performance. And if you're struggling to set non-performance goals, so for example, if it's quite hard to quantify your learning or you know, in a spin class, mm -hmm. it's quite hard to quantify. Yeah. You can rate yourself on how difficult was this class, one to 10 or something similar to that. Yeah. The A in SMART stands for achievable. So do you have the resources and capabilities to achieve the goal? And if not, can you obtain these? So do you have any reference points of others who have achieved it before? So going back to the gym, the spin example, you know that perhaps you can afford the membership, you've got the spare time set aside in the evenings to go to classes, and you know that others that have gone to the class before really enjoyed it and saw benefit in going. So you've kind of got that reference of someone that's been there, done that. The R stands for relevant. So you need to make sure when you're setting goals that the goal actually matters to you and aligns with your values as well as any other goals you might have. So in the spin example, the goal aligns with my other efforts to lead a healthier lifestyle, such as drinking less alcohol and also improving my diet. And additionally, I find cycling enjoyable. So yeah. I'm going to go to spin. Exactly. And that's really important, kind of spinning back there hey. <laughs> <laughs> to um, the idea around intrinsic motivation. So if you find that enjoyable, that is going to be intrinsically motivating and then it's going to be relevant to you. And then finally, the T in SMART stands for time bound. So this is about ensuring your goal has a target deadline to give you something to work towards and kind of keep you on track and focused. 
This also helps you prioritise different goals. So seeing when those deadlines are in the bigger picture. So this could be really specific, such as, you know, on the first of this month, I'll go get a membership and I'd like to do X number of classes in X number of weeks and then be able to do something by the end of this, such as, you know, in a spin class, staying on pace for all of the tracks within that class could be kind of your outcome, I suppose. So just as a little side note in relation to the SMART framework, we've mentioned before that there is some connection and overlap between goal setting theory and the SMART framework. And this is something that the authors of goal setting theory have previously acknowledged. So some of that evidence there is obviously relevant to the SMART framework as well. However, there's also some researchers out there cautioning against the kind of overuse of the SMART framework, actually saying that not all of it is entirely evidence-based and this is particularly in the space of physical activity promotions. We'll link that really nice critical paper in the show notes for anyone who is wanting to think critically about the framework and how well it applies to different domains of life. So that is it for today. Thank you everyone so much for listening. If you're getting brighter from this podcast then make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Once you're there, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a review of anywhere up to five stars. If you have any feedback, questions or suggestions for future episodes, or you're just nosy and want to put faces to the names, you can find us on all of our socials at GetBrighterPod. And if you're a bit more old school, we also check our emails at GetBrighterPod at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear what you have to say. We'd like to thank the Southwest Doctoral Training Partnership for supporting this podcast. And to finish off with our disclaimer. The Getting Brighter podcast is separate from our research and teaching roles at our respective universities. However, it is part of our shared passion for communicating science in an accessible and enjoyable way. Any advice given does not consider your unique individual circumstances, and we encourage you to seek professional guidance before making any significant lifestyle changes. Bye team, see you next time.